Lucky you. 36 you best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about Sandy. golf. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> James. All right, so I just hit the record button. So let me ask you, you what we can do. We can use this. Let me just, uh, I'll edit all this out. I know, Cody, I'm a shitty editor, but you'll see. We'll use this as a background. You might like Let's this. Kind of, we call this the... Uh, Beautiful. I'm going to move this down here. What's what's not to like? So that's the I, view when you come out of the locker room, Cody, and you take a oh, right. Oh, yeah, I know I know well, Bob. Here, mm -hmm. I'll give you, you can use this if you wanted it to. Look I, at Doug, that. This is our coffee table book right by the bar here. You can almost... <laughs> you got the Doug Smith... The Wingfoot story, Cody. You got the right book. That's right, man. When you have friends to come to Wingfoot, you tell them to go on eBay and buy that book because they will. It's worth every penny. Yeah, well, Billy, is. Billy Regan, we're really lucky today. I would like to get started by thanking Cody Gifford for coming on uh, our Alternate Shots podcast. I think this is episode thirty-two, and and we're really we're really kind of branching out because, as you know, Bill, uh, Billy and I like to talk about classic movies, and and we hope to dive into that. But welcome to the show. We really appreciate it, and look forward to hearing your stories today. Absolutely, Thanks for welcome aboard, Cody. It's a pleasure to <laughs> meet you and get to know you. I likewise, think it, likewise. I think it's worthwhile exposing the elephant in the room. How I know you, and it's very simple. Uh, your mom was pregnant, and. Uh, uh, maybe even before then, uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law lived not too far from your parents, right? And uh, along came Christine, and then along came Robbie, my son, uh, 33 years ago, and your birthday's coming up pretty soon, right? In March. You're going to be uh, one month oh, behind shoot. Robbie. Did we freeze? Huh? Did, uh, you... did we freeze? We, we lost each other for That's a second. That's okay. I'll, I'll say it again. So... Robbie February came, February 21st 1990 Robbie came just that's the only thing he's been first at with you and him right uh, I don't well besides golf that and golf <laughs> but uh you know that's how we got to know each other and it's been a terrific uh terrific opportunity to know each other so so Cody uh what's going on in your life these days I I know that you're a new father and uh love the wingfoot hat what Tell Billy and I uh, what's yeah. going on. This I got this actually. This was an impulse buy last time I played with Rob, uh, and we were we were walking out. I was about to drive home, and I, I you know, kind of look at looking at the shop, corner of my eye. I said, "All right, I got to go in there for old times' sake." And uh, Rob had just bought a bunch of stuff for Frankie. We had just had the baby, and I think it was the first time I had been out of the house in whatever it was, three or four months. And uh, Billy, I don't know if you have kids, but Bob, certainly you can appreciate. The first time you're let out of the house after you've been home and helping with the baby and your life has been turned upside down in the best possible way uh, to get out and walk uh, around Wingfoot with one of your best pals is maybe there is a, there's a, there's not a word in the English language that accurately uh, describes the joy <laughs> and the amount of fun that we had that day. But yeah, I got this hat. I love this hat for that reason. First time out of the house post Frankie. And I, Bob, you gotta help. You gotta let me uh, let me do this here because I, 
as a new dad, I also have to boast about the little guy a little bit too. Let's see. Can you... Oh, uh, goodness. There he is. Head of hair. Named Frankie. And he's named after my dad. So he's he's Frank. Frankie to us. And uh, Frankie Michael Gifford. Uh, the Michael being named after my wife's uncle who passed away, unfortunately, recently and was a very special man. So he's named after two strong men. And uh, we're going to keep their memories alive, telling him stories about his grandpa and his uh, his great uncle. So congratulations. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, thank you. Pat. And I don't even know if there was a question in there somewhere, but uh, uh, that's what Frankie's been keeping me busy and fatherhood and running my own little company, the little engine that could. Uh, we can get into the media stuff of all it. Billy, you were just telling me a little bit about your background. And uh, I'm inter really interested to hear some more stories, the war stories from Channel 9. There were a lot of uh, interesting days at Channel 9. <clears throat> we had some good directors. You know, they were TV directors. They knew their jobs, but they were hilarious. One of them, John Wolfe, rest in peace, really taught me a lot. I think his favorite lines uh, were all insulting. Uh -huh. You know, it was never like, uh, geez, you know, it's good having you out there. It's like, does that camera move? I understand they have wheels on those things. And, and uh, one, one of his favorite lines was when you made a mistake on Romper Room or something like that, you don't get two chances in live TV. But so you, we, <clears throat> you guys operate in that world. They're not saying it. Give us the sense of what that director is saying to you. Is he yelling at your ear? Is he just, you know, what's going on there? Depending on what, what the show is, Romper Room, for instance, he's, he's telling one, there's two cameras that he's directing as well as any kind of tape roll-ins that they might be uh, adding in, whether it's a Babar cartoon or whatever. But mostly he's telling the camera, I need a shot of the kids. How come I don't have a shot of the kids? Somebody got to include Molly in the shot. She's walking off the set, move truck to your left. You know, the camera has wheels. So it's frantic. It's, it doesn't sound like it's frantic when it's going on, but it is because it's all immediate and it has to be done at the, you know, in a timely fashion or you look like a bunch of idiots yeah. and my 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 maybe my third day on camera on romper room and it was live they're marching around miss marianne and all the kids are following her and i'm i'm supposed to keep marianne and the kids in the shot so i pan the camera past the set limits instead of moving this is where i learned i'm supposed to move the camera and it revealed uh the lighting director and two other stagehands who had a scoop light on a table and they were doping out a racing form. So that was now on, <laughs> romp, on romper room with the director yelling in my ear, <laughs> freezing me up, adding longevity to the mistake. And, you know, go to break, go to break, start the commercial, get out, get that off. Uh -huh. That was a good and day. Where, where was the studio? Times Square, literally uh, right across from one Times Square where they dropped the ball. And what was Times Square? This was what year now? This was for me from 78 to 88, about 78 to 86. Then yeah. it may be 87. They moved over to Secaucus, New Jersey. Channel nine had a, a um, their license was being challenged by some group that wanted to take over the TV station. Mm. And by some miracle, uh, New Jersey passed a law that, uh, or got Bill Barry, I think was the Senator at the time, got a law passed in Congress that any state that didn't have an existing FCC license uh, would get one, uh, you know, 
unconditional if a TV station moved there. So we hopped over to Jersey, which didn't have a license. Chased away the smart. lawsuit. Yeah. What's yeah, your experience smart. behind the camera or, or giving orders, to Cody? Ooh. Oh, I, I think I've gotten more orders in my life than I've given, frankly. I mean, it's funny. It brings me back to the, the TV side of it and the, on the studio side. Bob, I don't know if you even remember this. When I was about, I gosh, it would have been about maybe seventh or eighth grade. Uh, Billy, did you remember a gentleman named Albert Primo? Al T. Primo? Don't know the name. So, uh, Eyewitness News. He was the the mastermind behind Eyewitness News. Okay. And he came to my father, I think it was, back when I was four, yeah, seventh, eighth grade. And he said that he wanted to develop an Eyewitness, Eyewitness News for kids. And he was looking for, the, he was kind of going around to the usual suspects, I guess, um, in New York and going to their, their progeny, their kids and saying, hey, do you think, is this something you'd be interested in auditioning for and pursuing? And I really had no, I had no experience with, with broadcasting other than my mom pulling me on to live with Regis and Kathy Lee or whatever it was at the time. Um, but they were looking for a sportscaster and my dad encouraged me to do it and kind of get out of my uh, comfort zone a little bit and it ended up being a blast. I did it for about maybe two and a half years. And I think the show ended up being called Eyewitness Teen Kids News, uh -huh. uh, which is a mouthful. Um, and I th if I'm not mistaken, it, it could still be syndicated. I think I saw an advert for it the other day. It still, it still exists in one way, shape or form, but, um, I had a wonderful. You got a good taste of the studio life then. At a very early age, yes, and I and I did. Ray, I alluded to you know with everything with my mom. You know that was being on set was not particularly foreign to me, right? But right. to be in the in the hot seat and to show up and to work and get a paycheck and uh, read to a see, teleprompter. To, yeah, read a prompter and to have deductions from that paycheck and to learn what taxes are when you're thirteen or fourteen and. Um, <laughs> That, it's funny the things you really remember, right? But you know, and and too, you know, some of my co—not I wasn't a host, but I was the I was the resident sportscaster, and I even they God bless Al, um, may he rest in peace. He passed away recently, but he, uh, he gave me the green light to go ahead, and I did some of my, I did some stand-ups. I wrote some of my own pieces, which was a lot of fun. And again, this is going—I'm 32 now, soon to be 33. So this is going going way back for me. But uh, it was we'd drive in with dad uh, going into Manhattan when we were little. And that that was a fun, fun experience. And then also, yeah, reading the prompter. And I, I had braces at the time. And I remember the first time I was up there trying to enunciate. And the director, he was so, I forget his name, is kicking me. I didn't think we were going to talk about this. But he comes over to me and he was telling me about a very famous Greek or orator, right? And I don't know which one it was. But he was making me feel good about how he used to practice his um, his speeches in the symposium or wherever he was delivering speeches or debates, and he would put these pebbles in his mouth, and he would practice enunciating and pronunciating with these pebbles in his mouth. So it was kind of like a base, you know, baseball player swinging with a donut on his back, and yeah. then he would get up to the mound and take the donut, and suddenly it feels super light. Um, so to his credit, I had the braces in. So he made me feel as though I was special because I was constantly practicing with that extra weight on. So, um, so you had the pebbles in that. your mouth or the marbles? No, no, no. no the braces. No. I just remember yeah. thinking, I had the braces. I had a mouthful. I know of you had the braces, but I had braces too. Maybe he was also warming you up to play the teen godfather. 
Remember Marlon Brando <laughs> yeah. had to put the things in his mouth to get that. Oh big... yeah, the prosthetic. That's, oh, that's great. I, you know, it is a challenge to talk when, you know, none of us talk that much when we were kids, but now you're on the show and you're talking a lot, right? Right. Well, it's it's right. different to talk when somebody points at you and says, now talk. Yeah. And that little red light goes on, you know, camera two, camera one. And then, hey, it's your job not only to get your line, get your mark, but now you got to throw it over to uh, Juanza or all the whoever, whoever else was there. Right. It was uh, it we was a great to, experience. We used to mess with some of the talent sometimes because on our cameras, you could hit a button and the light would the red light would come on, but the, it wasn't really on. So you oh, kind of. <laughs> Just keep them, them on their toes. toes. Yeah, keep them on their toes. Yeah. You, you learn to turn the mic off too when you walk off the set. Otherwise, everybody gets all the uh yeah, all the, the hot mic. Yeah. 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 The hot mic. So Ted Baxter was the 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 guy in uh Mary Tyler Moore, which is a million years ago. Did you have any Ted Baxter embarrassing moments while you were doing that show? Did I have any? Yeah. No, I can't. I can't. No, say you were perfect every time, huh? Oh, well, you know, I, I'm trying to think what. Oh, I. Are you talking about just generally speaking? Did I ever screw up? I screw up all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. That's part. Of, that's part of the process, right? Um, <laughs> going going from not doing it at all to being like Billy said. You know, now you got to. But it, it it was it was a lot of fun. It really was a lot of fun at the time. I'm grateful that I did it, and I. Um, you know, I didn't really obviously. I I kind of pursued an, a different route. But I look back and say, you know, it's funny, you know, my 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 some of my other peers, what sort of jobs they were taking, you know, in the summer of seventh, eighth grade. And uh, it's I, I'm, I'm glad my dad pushed me into that. And I'm really especially glad. I remember distinctly driving down the Merritt Parkway with my dad in his blue Mercedes. And he, he had just got the Nora Jones CD and he loved that Nora Jones CD. And he, I think he liked the fact that he knew how to work his CD player. And that he could burn a disc or whatever it was. So we listen to that thing over and over and over again. So whenever I'm going down the Merit or whenever I hear uh, songs from that CD, I always think of my dad. So, and I've got a whole bunch of, I got, so I didn't know what the heck we're going to talk about. Let's but I got do a whole bunch let's of my, talk about my dad's. Uh, let's like, talk let's about Frankie's grandfather. Come on. What do you, what do you think? You oh my goodness. Tell Billy, tell Billy. About, I have one of those. What yeah, is I a bet. 50, 50 year membership. Uh, patch is that yeah so yeah, what we right. did we we did a about 10 years ago or maybe we did a precursor to the 100th celebration and uh frank was what number three or two or four he was pretty low in the totem pole he was right there seniority four can you see <laughs> four. it wow was mr mara still alive then do you remember that and this must have been the year before because he was five then. So something happened. Yeah. Maybe that's when Mr. Mara passed away because he was number one at one point. Let's uh, see if this has a date on it. Imagine that, Billy. It was 14 and 15. So I'd have to go, I'd have to go back, uh, go back and look. I don't... 2015? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, he was a, a stalwart uh, just about everywhere he went. What, what can you tell Billy and me about you'll never forget about your dad oh man where where to begin it's funny you mentioned well so i'll start with uh with wellington he was always well to dad right and it's so funny you're gonna think i have like harry potter one of those magical sacks where i just keep pulling <laughs> stuff out of i thought you guys would get a kick out of this and I'll, I'll pull it up to the camera here in a second but what i'm looking at is here this is a letter 
a New York football giants letterhead dated from February 9th, 1961. And it's from Wellington. It was written to my father. And the reason I bring this up within the context, I know you both are golf fans and, and, and have this Wingfoot as a special place in both your hearts. And obviously Wellington was my father's sponsor to Wingfoot. Now that meant, that meant, I can't tell you what that meant to my dad being a kid from Bakersfield, California that he was being sponsored by the owner of the New York football giants into the hollow ground that is Wingfoot. And honestly, until the end of his life, he would always, whenever Wingfoot came up, he would always boast. I don't know if boast is the right word, but he would represent proudly that Wellington was his sponsor. It was always in the same sort of breath. I think I've told you that before, Bob. But anyway, the letter here says, Dear Frank, I didn't get a chance to speak to you yesterday to tell you personally how much you have meant to me and to the Giants. You were with us at both ends of the rope, and no player ever did more to bring us from the bottom to the top. From the moment you joined us, I never knew you to be anything but the top. I never knew you to do anything in public or in private that did other that I never knew uh, where did I go? I never knew you to do anything in public or private that did other than reflect credit to yourself and to us. We have had and will have other fine boys and other great players, but I don't think there will be any who could so completely combine the epitome in both. We all wish you the best. You gave nothing less. You are nothing less, and you deserve nothing less, as always, well. And what's kind of neat about that is that that was February 9, 1961, after my dad retired for the first time, right? He had the very famous hit uh, by he who will not be named, Bednarik. Mm -hmm. And um, everybody thought that was the end. And speaking of broadcasting, everybody, you know, he was already doing, he was working for CBS, I think it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the time, he had a radio show concurrently while he was playing. And that was sort of, I guess, in, in some ways, sort of a paradigmatic thing where he was one of the early stars of whatever his sport was, whether it was football or baseball or what have you, transitioning into broadcasting. But uh, I guess he had, he had the itch and he didn't, didn't want to give it up. And he obviously came back and played three more years after that and was the first ever uh, comeback player of the year. So uh, I think the original question was a memory about dad. I mean, I, obviously I was, I was just a twinkle in his eye then, but it's kind of fun, especially being home here in Connecticut while we're still here to go around. And I, you know, I take very good care of my father's memorabilia and I, you know, I walk by and Pat has, uh, we've got a replica of his bust in the Hall of Fame. We have got one around the corner here. And um, I got a million stories. So other than that, I ho hopefully you guys get a kick out of that. Well, I learned something about your dad at the Super Bowl, which I had never, I, I had heard from Frank a number of times, his early days. He did the, he called it the invocation at the Masters. And he did that very well but what i heard at the super bowl in the first super bowl so what they did is they doled out the announcing to two people vin scully and ray scott so they only get to do half of the game but your dad did the entire game because he was the on-field reporter he did reporting each of the four quarters i had never heard that before how cool is that oh it's 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 I mean, it's just kind of surreal to think about, right? Again, you go back to, he would always say a kid from Bakersfield and it's, it's sort of like a little bit of Forrest Gump-esque, right? When you think about all these different arenas that he not only uh, participated in, but had such great success in. And I just, I say that of course, as just as a proud son, I'm immensely proud to be 
to be his son. But what's what's wild, Bob, I don't know if you know the story. So he had told he had promised the network that he was going to get a, an interview with Vince Lombardi before the game. So he had he had, you know, again, this is his his big, you know, he had just retired not all that long ago. Right. Just a few years ago, maybe five. The merger was what, 66. This game right around then, maybe shortly thereafter. Again, I wasn't around. So don't don't. someone's going to fact check me at some point. But we're talking mid to late 60s. And he, he was trying to make a name for himself now in broadcasting. And of course, he knew Vince because Vince had been the offensive coordinator for the Giants. So he had special access that the other guys in the media, other guys and gals in the media did not have access to. Right. So he made in the pregame meeting, he said, okay, I've spoken to Vince. Vince is going to give me the interview and, uh, you know, we can count on it. Let's put it on the schedule. So Vince is coming out of the tunnel. And again, I may, I've been hitting the head maybe too many times. It was the LA Memorial Coliseum, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost positive. Right. So we'll check it out. Vince is coming out of the tunnel and dad goes up to him and he, you know, brings a microphone up and Vince waves him off. And so and dad said, no, nah, and he chased after him. You know, dad was pretty quick and Vince was kind of lumbering over. So he catches up to Vince. And then you mentioned there, there, there was actually another network that was covering the game. There were two different networks covering That's the game, right. right? So one of the other reporters, I forget who it was, bolted after because he saw what was happening. So I guess he only got uh, he, the, the other reporter got just a fraction of what my dad caught with Vince. But my dad said Vince was as white as a ghost. He was so nervous for this game because I think even then, and a lot of, no, you know, who, who calls Vince Lombardi nervous, right? I mean, he's sort of the epitome of, of ice water, but dad knew him in a different way. And I think dad knew, you know, knew his tics and you know, had spent enough time with him. He called him a very, very dear friend. But I think Vince had, what's cool in that story, I think, is that Vince had the foresight to know what this game was going to mean for the NFL. Right. And guys like Pete Rosell and, and Vince and, uh, you know, all those guys back then, you know, who are now still to this day on the Mount Rushmore of the NFL and sort of define the way we know and consume and recognize and love the NFL today. Uh, a lot of it was I mean, you can kind of trace a straight line back to really the late 50s and the advent of television and then the merger and then the Super Bowl being presided over like guys like Roselle and my dad was fortunate to be enough along for the ride in at a perfect time in history, right? First as a player and then as a broadcaster and then on 27 years of, of Monday night. So stop me at any time. I can. No, no, I, I think I, I disagree I, with you on one thing. I think you're being too humble. You know, they talk about Arnold Palmer and what Tiger Woods has done to the game, but Tiger Woods in a real honest moment would say, he came from a platform that Arnold Palmer built and your father was beyond football. He was beyond, obviously, you know, he was the top guy. He wasn't a great golfer, but he was one of the top guys at the masters. He could get an interview, you know, and, and he, he was also, you know, the, 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 the Hollywood, you know, he was, he had so much charisma just like Palmer had, he, yes, the time was right, like for Palmer too. And he came around around the same time. But I think Frank did to football and to other sports that he was involved in, you know, the same kind of thing. That's why I disagree. I think his charm, his magnetism and his uh, charisma was also part and parcel of the right time. As well yeah. as his appreciation of the game. Yep. Yeah, well said, well said.
but better you saying it than me, Bob. <laughs> well, you know what he would say about some of these announcers today. Bobby, they talk too much. Yeah, they talk too much. I'll give just as in a complete aside, you guys are getting a kick out of this. As my dad got older and older, you know, I I I told you, you know, before we hopped on here, my wife and I, we lived in California for for over a decade and we've only recently come back and it's been a product of the pandemic and uh we've kind of been maintaining our place here. But um I have a very fond memory of my dad. I, I walked in and he was watching the news really intently focused on whatever he was watching. But here's the kicker. The, the mute button had been activated. So he's watching the news and he's just locked in to what's go, whatever the hell's going on. And I kind of watched him there for a beat. And again, he's, you know, he's advanced age at that point. And I said, dad, what are you doing? He said, I'm watching the news. I said, well, why do you have, why do you have the mute button on? He goes, cause I've heard it all before. <laughs> You thought he was having a senior moment. He wasn't. He did that by design. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He did it. He did it by design. And it's funny. You mentioned Bobby mentioned Arnold Palmer. And stop me, guys, at any point if I'm just jabbering. So, Cody, let's do this because we're going to get cut off on the Zoom. Let's just oh, cut okay. right here. I'm going to hang up on this Zoom. You just come right back on the same Zoom. Yeah, just click on the link again. So give me one. Uh, if you click have to on take the a same minute link. To go get a same drink link. of water. Go ahead and do that. I'm going to stop yeah. this. I'll be back in one minute. Two minutes. Two minutes. Uh -huh. Maybe a little commission. I'm going to have to let him. All right. So recording one, two, three. So Cody, we're back. Before we get going, um, are you a big classic, you know, 60, 70 year old movies years ago type of guy? Do you like the classic movies? Or you, uh, you, you, I, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I, I like, I think, a good movie is a good movie irrespective of when it was made, right? I don't like a movie simply because it was born out of a certain era or, or, or what have you. And I think the masters, there are masters in every generation, right? And the, the auteur theory and all of that. I mean, that's that's some highfalutin stuff, right? And uh, I mean, as a consumer, a good movie is a good movie. As a creator, I, 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 I mean, I'm trying to think. Oof, I, some of, I mean, the obvious ones like Sunset Boulevard go, you know, Billy Wilder and uh, things like, like Matt Preston Sturges, uh, directors and films. Uh, I mean, we different different periods. We go all the way back to the the earlier studio days. And uh, I mean, I I did my degree in in cinema studies at SC way back when, and we can go all the way back to like the Lumiere brothers and uh, uh, D.W. Griffith and. So you you fire away, man. If I'm uh if I'm out of water on some of these, I'll tell you. But uh, Billy, have have at it. What do you guys you, like? You 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 just described um, what we were actually talking about with your dad and uh, Arnold Palmer is the platform from which all these other movies came. So as as John Wolfe, who I mentioned before, once said to me, <clears throat> "You see slapstick, and you think you know how silly." But think of the first guy that proposed that to somebody. Walks in an office and says, you know what we ought to do? We ought to have the guy tip over in his chair, slide across the room, bang his head on the wall, have a clock fall on his head, bowling ball rolls back, you know. Yep. They would have looked at him like he had two heads. And yet slapstick came along and, and became a whole genre. So pioneers are necessary. And the guys today who interpret uh, the 
what I would call the the uh, guts of a movie and make movies based on that are are the guys that I really appreciate today and and from back then. Mm -hmm. that you know that are more interested in plot plot twists camera angles and all of that than they are in uh you know celebrity roles yeah. sometimes as i've said to bob before sometimes uh, you know a movie's more about the actor than the than the movie and I, I don't think that should ever be true i think the movie it, like the sport is the important thing and, and i think the movie is the important thing mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be substance. It doesn't have to have a message. It just has to be entertaining. And there's so many movies that are entertaining, you know, today and back then. But yeah, I'm I think about too with um, with even going not just in service of the story, but in service of their fellow actors and creators and technicians. Like you look at how United Artists was founded, right? With yeah. um, Charlie Chaplin and. Mary Pickford and uh, Douglas Fairbanks, right? The the yeah. wanting to take power away that had sort of been monopolized in these in these homes, where um, yeah, they, they were, were subject to contracts. They were traded like like commodities. The yes. stars were right. So bringing that agency back, and then you have this flourishing of um, of of really really amazing product thereafter when you give the creators. The ability to go and do what they want to do and what they're inspired to do, and then and then then and then with that, of course, then come along the the talent agents, and then the whole thing. And, sure. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm totally I'm totally. What is, I mean, what's in service of the story of the story of the story of the story, um, not just yeah, having I, it be. I, a... I I think today you know, we we usually lean towards classic movies, and you always say Alfred Hitchcock and you know Billy Wilder and. I think Guy Ritchie and the Cone Brothers um, today are are the ones that attract my attention the most. Quentin Tarantino to a degree, although sometimes he's a little extreme. But who tells a story better than Guy Ritchie these days? Mm. The, the way he presents the story, the mm -hmm. plot lines are good. The characters are always terrific. You know, yeah. pure entertainment. What do you think of The Gentleman? I loved it. I, I did too. I was so surprised by it. I, I knew nothing other than... I, I see the cast and then yep. I know it's a Guy Ritchie movie. And I remember walking in, I, I watched it by myself in Santa Monica. I think it was right before the pandemic. Yep. And Erica, Erica, my wife was away with her family that weekend. I said, I'm, you know what? I haven't been to the movies in God knows how long and I miss it. And it was a Guy Ritchie movie. And I remember walking out right onto Ocean Avenue there in Santa Monica and thinking that was a fantastic movie. It, it's funny you say that because I hadn't been to the movies in a long time either. But I always keep my eye out for, as I tell my kids, Godzilla or King Kong, I have to go, I'm obligated, or Guy Ritchie. So <clears throat> I went with a friend and saw The Gentleman, and I liked it the way you did so much. I actually went back and saw it again the next day in the mm. movie theater. So I've been to the movie theater maybe 10 times in 10 years, and two of them were two days in a row for that movie. Yeah. I think yeah. Colin Firth was ridiculously funny in that movie. Right. I mean, Colin right. Farrell. Uh-huh. And you mentioned the Cohen brothers too, and I, I was reading about I think I, it was maybe even Business Insider or something. There was an article with Denis Villeneuve, the great uh, French Canadian filmmaker who's now like the hottest director in Hollywood, and he really is a um, he's a student, you know, of the history of film. He knows his stuff, obviously. I mean, the guy's one of the best on on planet Earth right now. But he was saying that No Country for Old Men was 
probably one of the best movies. I forget what it was of, uh, it was either in the last 50 years or maybe his all time list. And he ranked it. If not at the, I'll have to go back and check that Bob. I'll send you a link after either at the top or very, very near the top. And I remember thinking, I think that came out in 2006 or seven, if I'm not mistaken. I remember seeing it when I was in high school and wow. What a, I mean, there's two really kind of interesting, uh, features in that movie that are not mentioned or understated there's no sound musical soundtrack mm -hmm. there's no, the only music in it is when he wakes up in mexico and he's a mexican band playing as part of the movie and the other kind of unique thing is is the three leading characters in that movie javier bardan tommy lee jones and uh barbara streisand's son i can't remember his name right now i don't really remember but anyway the, the three leading characters are never in the same scene together. Mm -hmm. They're never on the screen at the same time together, which is very odd for a movie. When you That's think three, design, th th that was it, sure is. That's what, what is it, Bob? That was by design, not by accident. No, yeah, no, everything oh, yeah, they did was by design. So. Yeah. And who? And you, you end up watching it, and at the end, you think, okay, who, who really was? It, not in terms of pure screen time, but who really was the protagonist of that movie? And I think it's Tommy Lee Jones, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he yeah. tells that story about his father in the dream, and so actually oh. he was the younger man. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and that's and that's the that's the title of the movie, "No Country for right. Old uh, for Old Men." Is as that's Tommy Lee Jones. He's like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, come across something I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's yeah. a terrific movie. Yeah, agree. You need a strong agreed. stomach for it, but it's terrific. Well, to just, I mean, just anytime Javier Bardem is on screen, yeah, you need to get his, uh, his, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's unbelievable. Uh huh. He's unbelievable. To Billy's buddy in another episode, we did something a little offbeat. Uh, his friend Alvaro Saralegi and his four siblings uh, had to flee Cuba in 1960. His mother was 27. Tell the story. Five Sarah. kids. When she's when she's having it up to here, right? Alberto's mother, who's lovely, still alive, had set at five kids at that time at 27 mm. and said, We're going to Miami on vacation. Ha ha ha. They went to Miami with just enough clothes to go to the Fountain Blue for a few days or wherever they were going. And uh that never was their came story. back. Yeah. Never came back. But he's he and Billy were talking about, I don't know if it was you and Alvaro or the other brother about carnal knowledge. And I feel a little guilty because I'm watching that now because I really never watched that movie. But, you know, who thought Art Garfunkel might be a good actor, right? And <laughs> I, love, I, I love Jack Nicholson and Candace Bergen. That was, I, I don't think she ever looked better in her whole life. And then Anne Margaret, oh my goodness. And, and you're, that to me, wow, you could spend days on that movie, right? It was a it's a punchline in one of the all in the family episodes where Archie comes back with Edith like, how could you take me to a movie like that? I had, I had to watch the movie like this. No one was ever standing up. <laughs> it was like, I thought it was a religious movie. Cardinal knowledge. <laughs> it's not cardinal yeah. knowledge. Carnal's a completely different thing. Right, right. For, not quite. <laughs> but you reminded me of that story about Cuba, because didn't you say to me you have the you don't have we can delete delete this if you don't want it to be known but about the johnny roselli book no 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 don't delete it i get, we'll give it a good plug how about that 
Okay, yeah, let's I do that. I got it. I got to It's got to tell Billy the background. All American Mafioso, the Johnny Roselli story. And what this is, and for those who don't know, Johnny Roselli was the National Crime Syndicate's man in Las Vegas. And he was always the guy behind the guy. He's not as well known, um, I guess, by the layman, the people who don't really focus on mafia stories. He's not He's not like an Al Capone or a um, Bugsy Siegel or Sam Giancana. Um, although in many ways he was just as influential. He was also the guy whom the CIA hired when the CIA wanted to assassinate Castro. Fidel Castro. Yeah. And they wanted to decapitate the Castro regime regime prior to an amphibious invasion, which ultimately yeah. became the, the known as the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, and so, the mafia's interest was to get their casinos back down in Cuba. That's exactly right. Cuba was the was Cuba was Las Vegas before Las Vegas really blossomed. Because it was completely deregulated under the Batista regime, right? It was a free for all, and it was um, it was I guess you'd call it maybe unbridled excess. Mm -hmm. And the mafia moved in with guys, guys like Giancana and Roselli was sort of an emissary. He worked beneath Giancana out of Chicago, but then he they they sent him out west, and he was managing the the affairs on the west coast. Absolutely bananas. This guy's life story in, in different stages. I mean. He was at, he ends up shaking down Columbia Pictures and Harry Cohn for essentially operating control over the studio. So people don't realize that prior to, you know, the Great, Great Depression happens, 1929, 1930, the stock market crashes, the depression ensues, and Harry Cohn is looking to buy out his brother out of Columbia Pictures. And who's liquid at the time after the crash? Who has who has cash, right? Wall Street's not Wall Street's not too keen on it. The mafia, the National Crime Syndicate. So Rosselli ends up brokering a deal for the mafia to become a silent partner in Columbia Pictures all through the 1930s. And they're staying again behind the scenes up until they get caught, which they do get caught. And he ends up he ends up also infiltrating IATSE, which is sort of the stagehands and the projectionist union, right? An so international they, alliance for stage and theatrical employees. That's exactly right. Yeah. They end up planting a guy. And Billy, stop me if you know this already. I'm sure you do. They, they end up planting a guy named Willie Byoff in as president of IATSE, while Roselli is secretly pulling the puppet strings on Columbia Pictures. And what this would allow the mafia to do and we're, we're talking now, again, 1930s, early 1940s, leading up to World War II. What this would allow the mafia to do would be to cook up or at least threaten the prospect of a projectionist strike. Uh -huh. So you can pour all the money you want into making a movie and cutting a film and scoring it and doing everything you want. But if the projectionists are going to walk out of the movie theaters en masse, yeah. you cannot, you're not going to recoup anything. Right. So he would leverage that position against the studios. And I kid you not, this this is all this is all based on this is not this 
sorry, it's not congressional testimony, but this was one of the greatest extortion schemes in the history of the U.S. legal system. And I'm so surprised that people don't know more about it because they do end up getting caught. But Johnny Rosselli and his coterie, they were shaking down the studios for fifty, hundred thousand dollars a year in cash. Guys like Jack Warner and his associates, whether it was Warner Brothers, whether it was Paramount, um, RKO, what, all the biggies back in the day, they would fly out personally to Manhattan and they would leave a bag of cash in his hotel suite every year so that they could quell a potential labor union that was orchestrated by the mafia. Right. The, kicker, the kicker to that also is that all through the 1930s, <clears throat> you can hear my enthusiasm, when the mafia had control, silent control over Colombia, they never lost money. They were always in the black. And, and obviously, you know, that you're talking about Marilyn Monroe getting her start. You're talking about Frank Sinatra uh, having his resurgence. Um, this is not conspiracy. This is a matter of public record. And that is only the first phase of Johnny Rosselli's life until, they, like I said, they ultimately get caught. They spend a few years in prison. They make a few phone calls. They get out on parole or whatever it is that they do. And they're not allowed to go back to Los Angeles. So where do they go? They go to a little outpost in the middle of the Nevada desert called Las Vegas. And they take the racket on the road and enter Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo and the Desert Sands and the Golden Nugget. And that's basically, you can that's the evolution, right? What started in Los Angeles spread to Nevada and then 1959, 1960, Fidel Castro comes roaring into Havana, and Johnny Rosselli gets a phone call from a guy named Bob Mayhew. Bob Mayhew was a former FBI agent and officer, I believe, in the OSS during World War II. He spent his time killing Nazis. He gets a call from Bob, who is Howard Hughes's number two, and he says he wants to have lunch at a place called the Brown Derby uh, restaurant in Beverly Hills. So they sit down for lunch together, Mayhew and Rosselli do, and Bob Mayhew says the U.S. government needs your help to kill a sovereign leader, and that sovereign leader was Fidel Castro. And there is a lot of debate over who actually put that order, sent that down the wire. Oh, look who we got here. Look who we got here, Bob. I'm going to hold you in suspense for one minute here. Hold on. Let, let Frankie say hi. Let Frankie say hi. He comes in right at the climax here. Oh, look at this. <laughs> Every, everybody who's just listening to this and not watching is going to be like, why the hell did he stop? This is my little boy, everybody. He's, mm. he's tall. Love you, Frankie. Hello, Frankie. Frankie, say hi to Bob and Billy. Hey, Frankie. They're big stars. Big stars. Wait. All righty. I'm going to give you to mama. I'm, I'm, I got to help <laughs> feed this boy dinner in a few minutes. Erica, okay. we're almost done. Hey, Bob says, Erica, we're almost done. You you, you do good work, Erica. That is so funny. <laughs> Love you guys. I'll see you in a minute. I'm so sorry about that. No, no. Um, so back. So um, you were just getting to Johnny Fontaine never gets that part. That's right. That's right. Yeah, with, a, with a horse. There's a horse missing a head somewhere. Yeah. Um, so they're at the Brown Derby. This And by the way, this all really happened. This is a matter of congressional record, which came out during the church committee testimonies, um, which was an invest a Senate investigation into the improprieties in the intelligence community in the latter half of the last century. So just and, go back two steps. 
who's at the the lunch at the Brown Derby again? The Johnny Rosselli. Yeah. Johnny Rosselli and a guy named Bob Mayhew. And Bob Mayhew was a cutout for the CIA. He had top secret clearance and he was somebody the CIA used to, shall we say, interact or interface with criminal enterprises when the CIA didn't want to get their hands dirty. So you can understand in 19, what was happening in 1960. There was a presidential election that year. So this was, or, and I was, I, I was saying there's some, there's some debate over who actually, who is the uh, progenitor of this plan. Well, Richard Nixon was the vice president at the time under Ike. A lot of people say this was Nixon's idea. The election happens. Kennedy wins, of course. The die had already been cast leading up to the Bay of Pigs. So this was all in motion. So there are accusations that this was Jack Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy. They were the inheritors of this plan, right? Because Nixon was notoriously hawkish on Cuba and in com communism more broadly. So this, this, this story and I mentioned, I showed you the book, the, we, I say we, my partner and I, my writing partner, John C. Richards, who wrote Paterno for HBO and Sahara for Paramount with Matthew McConaughey and Penelope Cruz, an absolutely fantastic writer. I got the rights to this book a few years ago. We developed it during the pandemic and we're just now going out with it, doing the, the dog and pony show and doing a pitch. And we've got some other interested, uh, some pretty cool people attached to it. Now we found a director and I don't want to get too over my skis and you know making those announcements, but it's it's come a long way. But the story is about this ragtag group of spies and mafiosos hunkered down in South Florida and in Miami and in Key Largo, basically running clandestine operations to and from Cuba, trying to whack Castro, and all of the ancillary things that come off of that spine, which are again conspiracy theories surrounding what happened to JFK, which by the way, are becoming more and more, or I guess you had to say less and less uh, conspiratorial and more and more mainstream by the day as more and more information comes out. Um, it's a very, very topical story about all of the stuff that goes on beneath the surface of uh, American politics and geopolitics, right? So I've always been interested in that. I've always been interested, what is the real story? What is the real story? And we're basing our whole take on what we can prove people actually said. We're not deciding one way or another, this happened exactly this way, but this is exactly what this guy said happened at this point in time. And everybody can go and do their homework and see that we're not fudging it. So it is a crazy, crazy banana story. And uh, I hope the next time I'm on, if you invite me back on, I hope it'll be uh, on some stream or somewhere. It must be like oh. peeling back an onion though. Every, everywhere you look, you find more. A really stinky onion, Billy. Because, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a spoiler alert. Roselli, they find him dismembered in an oil drum floating off of Dumbfoundling Bay right by Fort Lauderdale. Hmm. And that was, guess what? That was one week after he testified to a closed Senate committee hearing on the assassination of JFK. There you go. And it was just sh shortly after Sam Giancana was shot twice in the back of the head in his Chicago home. And then plugged, I think, five more times in a in the uh, shape of a smile around his mouth. So and there's is a this lot before or after story. Kennedy was was killed? No, this well that so 19, 1960 to 1963 is really the scope of when the meat when the meat and potatoes of all these operations were taking place. Obviously, Kennedy is is assassinated in 63. Flash forward, 
the church committee is happening about maybe 12, I think 12, 15, 12, yeah, 12, 13 years later. And um, I think Rosselli is ultimately killed in 70, 76 or 77. Um, but um, really interesting. It, it's, it, I mean, I, I, I think any fan of uh, American history or you know, true American history kind of people who want to know the truth about what happened. I, I, I go into every meeting when I'm trying to sell this project and I say, all right, I promise you I'm not one of those people with a tinfoil hat on. And then I, you know, I'll send him a PDF of the congressional record and the testimony of all of the government agents who came with their head between, you know, tail between their legs saying, yeah, we did try to do this. The exploding cigars, Castro's exploding cigars are real. Uh, the mis his mistress that we recruited to kill him did get cold feet and she ended up not killing him, but making love to him. Um, so I don't know what else to say. So you thinking, like, <laughs> Castro dodged a lot of bullets. You this sure could did. be like a series, Cody, because it doesn't sound like it's a one shot movie. Or would you think it? No, good question. We what we want to do is we want to do it well i told you how it ends for roselli but what we want to do is do it as a limited a 10 episode limited with the idea being that you can take that template and apply it to other instances of what is the real story behind the nexus between organized crime and the u.s government working together yeah so there are unfortunately uh, other instances where that took place and really begs the question when when the US government is subcontracting murder, <laughs> it's like who really is the gangster and who's the patriot? And that's the other kind of interesting part of Rosselli's story is that he was um he was born in Italy, came over the transatlantic crossing. His father was a shoemaker working at a factory in East Boston, slaving away to bring his family over from the Cosa Nostra, really to get them away from mafia influence in Italy. And they come over early. Rosselli's born in 1905. I think they come over sometime in the mid-19-teens. And right when Rosselli and his mom and his siblings get here, his father dies in 1918 in the last great pandemic this country saw. Whoa. So he ends up, you have this young boy in East Boston who doesn't speak English, who's now the eldest and has to take care of his mother, who shacks up with a boyfriend who's beaten the hell out of her, and his siblings. So he tries to take his father's job at the factory. And then he tries to also get a job wearing his father's dairy uniform, delivering milk. And he realizes very quickly, he can make a hell of a lot more money selling morphine on the docks than he can doing that. And it's that decision that he makes, which ends up leading again in a straight line all the way at the end of his life to being in a barrel. But what he always loved is that when he did have time with his father, when he came over to America, he always believed in this great dream that was the American dream. And his father desperately believed in it, that hard work and that that ethos you could elevate, one could elevate oneself to great things in this country, which I certainly subscribe to. And I think a lot, I would imagine both of you guys do too. But when the government comes around at the end of his life, this is a guy who volunteered to fight in war. This is a criminal who volunteered to fight in World War II because he believed in the cause and he was denied because he had tuberculosis. So when the government comes around, they offer him $150,000 cash to do this. And he turns it down. He turns, he doesn't want the money. He says he'll do it out of a sense of patriotism. <laughs> and the government, the government didn't believe him. They said <laughs> that we, we can't imagine that you would be so honorable as to do that. 
And to his credit, he paid his own way. And every time he's going back and forth to Las Vegas to Miami, he didn't take a dime. There's a difference so, between organized crime and disorganized crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. So well, um, we know that you got to get some places here. There's so many things. Just imagine if Roselli shut the cameras down. Marilyn Monroe would never be heard of, or maybe Frank Sinatra. Just, just imagine the things. Just imagine if the girlfriend came through and killed Castro what it would be like. Just imagine the other side of the coin of all these things in this story that you're already well aware of. Uh, yep. It's it's fabulous. So let's transition. We're going to we're gonna wrap this up with the Arnold Palmer story. You got to tell us. Oh, good. Yeah, wait, that's Frank that's Gifford. <laughs> I know you got millions of Frank Gifford stories and that's why you're coming back along with more importantly, this uh, Johnny Roselli story, whatever you're going to make it out as. We're going to hear more about that but it's all yours on this story. Go ahead. All right. I'll, I'll be brief. I promise. No, you mentioned Arnold Palmer earlier when you were so, so, you know, very kindly uh, being complimentary of dad um, being one of the people who kind of built up the game and the infrastructure in the NFL. And my, my wife and I, I guess then girlfriend, we were at um, a place called the Greenbrier, um, the Greenbrier in West Virginia. Beautiful old, be yeah, exactly. Beautiful old hotel and a resort and um, we're there for um, the wedding of a dear friend of, of my wife's and we're getting in the elevator and out walks Arnold Palmer and Lee Trevino. Wow. And they're walking down the hall and I think, you know what? I've, I've never met him. Bob, like you said, he's in his element here. He's, he's here to relax. Everybody and their mother is going to go bother these guys. And then, but I told Eric, I just finished telling Eric because I think I had heard that he was at, at the hotel and I had finished telling Eric, you know, that my dad had called, of course, some of his matches. And I just, she, she kind of elbowed me. She's like, you got to go, you got to go introduce yourself. And that's so, Bob, you know me, that's like the last thing. Cause people would do it to my parents. And I'm, I was very sensitive to that. And I said, you know what, the guy is. You know, whether he's the GOAT or not, that's that's for a debate for you guys to have another time. But I, I went over uh, I went over to him and I introduced myself and I said, excuse me, sir. Um, it's a pleasure to meet, you know, sirs, it's a pleasure to uh, uh, meet you both. I just I'm just um, in awe of, of what you guys have accomplished and whatever I said, I probably sounded like an idiot like I do now. But um, and I then I said. And they're both very, you know, gentlemanly, of course, and very respectful, but they're kind of looking at me like, all right, you know, here's just some other schmuck who's coming up to bother us when we're on our vacation on our way to dinner or whatever. And then I ended by saying, you know, my, my father had the great fortune to, um, to call some of your matches. And it was Arnold who turned around and he said, oh, yeah, what's, what's your father's name? And I said, my father's Frank Gifford. And his eyes got really big. Same with Lee's. And Lee came over and gave me a hug. And I guess I think it was either his son or his daughter who was just on their way to USC or thinking about going to USC, University of Southern California. And he, they were just the coolest guys you can ever imagine. And Arnold Palmer, I'll never forget, he said, when you see your father, you please say that I said hello to him. And, I was, and that's like, sounds silly, but the way he, the way, I mean, he's Arnold Palmer. Right. You know, I was, I, the way he said it and the way he looked, there was like a genuine degree of recognition and respect that this guy had for my dad and the reverence that I had for Arnold. Like it was by transitive property almost like 
channeling through, I'm like, wow, this is really, really neat. And the fact that Lee had that connection to USC was super cool. So it's a silly story. It's kind of one where you had to almost experience it. But it was, I told Erica afterwards, my wife, I said, it's really, it was so cool to see both of these guys have the kind of respect, the evident respect that they had for my dad. It just made me, you know, it's hard not to feel warm and fuzzy when something like that happens. So, well, when you see Erica after you part from us here, tell her, Thanks. Nice nudge. Thanks for the elbow. Yeah, because yeah. we're out the elbow. You're not going to do that. And and look at how great that story is. And I'm not pretty sure they really appreciated those moments that, that you shared with them too. I'd be I'd be nothing if not for that elbow. I'm a, I'm a sucker <laughs> for that woman. She's the she's my better half in, in in the best of all ways. So guys, it was such a pleasure. I'm going to go feed my baby. Thanks for having me on. Cody, take care. We'll Thanks, talk Cody. to you soon. Good luck on other things that you're thinking about doing. Let us know. Keep us up to date. Yeah, I have All an right, idea guys. for you. I'm going to send you an email. All righty. Sounds good. See All ya. right. Take care. Bye. Take care, guys. I was going to ask you, I was going to put a plug in for you to be an assistant director, but I didn't get a chance. No, I don't. But I do want to talk to him. What he's doing is uh, very much like the idea I have about Benny Binion. So if he gets yeah. the thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today, Billy Horner, we really appreciate your feedback. And please Marky, subscribe to the show and hit Claude the bell Harmon, icon so you get notified. Movie classics, new episodes. Mark Gable, hit him hard job. and hit him off. That's thirty-six holes.